in my time zone when my mind's gone and I'm flying home and I'm stressed out and I'm tempted to get that style phone and go pull it up but you know what's up and you know that ain't gonna solve nothing I mean Lord forbid I might follow something and I'm all another cause so hold me down like bitch straps to the psych ward it's killing me but you still with me when I fight hard and you digging me when I'm eating you deal with me when my car's pulled could have dealt with me but you fell for me for I fell for you Well, today we conclude our Song of Solomon series, and it's been a lot of fun for me over the last month and a half to unpack this part of God's Word with you guys, and it's been a series about love, God, sex, and relationship, and really what we've seen is God's design for marriage and how that speaks to us as singles and as marrieds uh, as we seek to honor God with our lives, and today we see the book come to a close, and we see this couple's commitment to the very end. And in order to prep us for that, I've got an audio video I want you guys to see and listen to to prepare our hearts for what we're going to be talking about. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, She's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years. To make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. A couple here at the Brook uh, pointed us to this video during a marriage class we had earlier this year. And this is Robertson McQuilkin, the president of Columbia College, at his resignation day. His wife, Muriel, had Alzheimer's, and uh, her condition had begun to progress. And he knew that in order to be with her as he covenanted to, and as it was his desire, he needed to step down from being the university president. And some 10 years after that, Muriel did die as he was with her along that journey. Here we see a man who's committed to the very end. A man who embodies the scriptures that we're going to talk about today. A man who knew what it meant to fight for his marriage and for his wife in sickness and in health until death did him part. See, marriage shouldn't quench love and romance. Rather, it should invigorate and deepen it. 
Marriage invigorates and deepens love and romance. The time and the energy and the effort that is put into it. These words in our culture don't have the same bang as they once did. We live in a day where the value of marriage has been reduced to a piece of paper. It has been reduced to something less than beautiful, something worth fighting for. And what we want to do is ask, how does a man like Robertson McQuilkin and hundreds and thousands of others, tens of thousands, who fought to the very end, how do they do it? How do we find a passion and a strength and the energy in marriage when things are difficult beyond the honeymoon, beyond that first year, but 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years later? Marriage is more than a piece of paper. It is not a ball and chain. It is not a life sentence to eternal boredom, as some might say. Someone once said a marriage is a great institution, but who wants to live the rest of their lives in an institution? And so what we've seen in the Song of Solomon is that oftentimes our cultural perceptions of marriage are off. We've seen in this story a couple grow in their attraction for one another that was based upon the character that they saw in the other. We saw this woman in chapter 1 say, I've been working in the fields and my skin is burnt, but I know I'm still lovely. A woman who understood her identity to be more than just the externals. And he says, you are most beautiful among women because he valued her inward character. We see in chapter 2 and 3 how they're committed to catching the little foxes that will run their relationship ragged. They said, no, we're committed to this thing, even through the highs and the lows of relationship. They're committed to their purity as singles as they awaited their wedding night. We see the common refrain, do not awaken love until it pleases. And then on their wedding day, we hear God in his voice, so to speak, saying, awaken. Eat, friends, and drink and be drunk with love. She likens her body to a garden. garden, And at their wedding night, she says, come into your garden and eat of its fruit. It's a beautiful picture of what, what waiting means when you enter into marriage But then we see the following chapters of that, that they entered into conflict. Because conflict is normal in relationship. Every healthy relationship has conflict because it means that you're expressing your ideas. It means that you're not always feeling like you need to agree to keep the peace. But the trick is how you deal with the conflict. And that's where communication comes into the picture. And today in the final two chapters of the Song of Solomon... We see their ongoing story of romance and love and commitment to the very end. With time, marriage ought to deepen love, not quench it. Time should not kill the passion that once was, but invigorate it. But time will only deepen love if you grow together correctly. Today, we're going to see four ways that this couple grows together. First, we see that they have a commitment to a deepening love, which comes through studying your spouse. Secondly, we see that there is a creativity about their love, which lets old love produce new expressions. Thirdly, we see that there is a fierce love within them, which takes its cues from God and his unquenchable love for us. And fourthly, we see a reflective love, 
which calls to mind all the ways that God has intervened. And when we grow in these ways in marriage, we can be confident that our marriage will deepen because God is guiding it. Now, I know among us there are many who are in different places in our lives, some single, some married, some previously married, some in her second or third marriage. I want you to know that God wants you to, to hear his word here, to strengthen you in your singleness, to reaffirm your commitment to honoring God with your body and waiting for his perfect timing, to know that your identity is bound up in who he says you are and now what community, uh, culture says you are. For those who are married, to be uh, filled with a renewed commitment to fighting for your marriage. And maybe the fears of previous failures, when they begin to set in, that you can hold on to God. Say, no, God, I'm committed because I'm founded upon you. For those marriages that are working through hard times, pray you find comfort and direction. Because here in Song of Solomon, we see that love should deepen in marriage, not be quenched. Well, we turn on the fans and the air conditioner because in chapter 7, we see a pretty intimate scene. It'll hopefully uh, relieve some of the the burden here from you guys. We're going to see that love deepens with time because this this couple is committed to studying one another. They're studying each other like a scholarship depends on it. You know those students. They're the ones feeling that burden, like I've got to maintain a certain GPA to maintain a scholarship, and they're burdened. Don't be burdened like that, but study with that same intensity. Study your spouse so you can deepen and grow in marriage. Tim Keller shares a story where he says something to the effect of, uh, someone asked him, do you still feel those warm fuzzies when you hold your wife's hand? And he says, of course not. Our our love is far deeper than that. And and I read that and I thought, you know, there's something about that because a lot of times we reflect like, oh, remember the good old days. But he's saying, those were good, but I know her deeper and better. And we see here in chapter 7 that this couple knows each other better here than they did even on their wedding night. They are committed to growing with each other, and their knowledge is sweet and precious. And he begins at verse 1. He says to his bride of several years likely by this point, How beautiful are your feet in sandals. He had an issue with boots. He just loved those sandals. Oh, noble daughter. He says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. He didn't talk about her thighs on her wedding night because he didn't know her thighs on her wedding night. But he studied his wife since. And he says, it's like a masterpiece. Verse 2, your navel is rounded bowl. You never say that to a woman, man. (laughs) That never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of, don't say heap of anything, right? It's a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. You see, wine and wheat were components of a meal in the first century. We, We don't value fruit of the vine now as they did then. We don't have wheat as part of our diet. But for them, that was a, that was a necessary component. And he's saying, it's as a feast to me when I am there looking at your belly. Verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Again, you don't yell when you see deer in the forest because they're going to run away. You approach them slowly and delicately, and he does so here with his wife. Verse 4, your neck is like an ivory tower. 
That's strength, all right? That's strength. Your eyes are pools in Hezbon by the gate of Bat Rabim. Hezbon was a busy city, but they were known for their pools within their city. And it's as if he's saying, you know, I go to this busy city and all the, the buzz going around, but when I come and look into your eyes, it is still as a pool and you settle me. He goes on to tell her in verse 5, Verse, uh, verse 4, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. That dude's smooth, right? Which looks toward Damascus. See, the tower looked toward the capital city for protection. And there was a stature about that tower. And he's saying there's a beauty about her and a stature about her presence and her nose and her face. He's complimenting her strength. Verse 5, your head crowns you like Carmel, which was a mountain that stood out at a long distance. And he says, just as that mountain sat upon the land, so does your head sit upon your body, and it is beautiful. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. And it's not an army that holds a king captive. It's not this great military force. But he's saying, wife, it's your hair. It keeps me, keeps me captive. He goes on in verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. There's nothing subtle about that. And it says, Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. And she goes down and she goes on to say, It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Notice in verse 9, he says, Your mouth is like the best wine. And she completes the idea. She says, And it goes down smoothly. You know, isn't it crazy how they finish each other's sandwiches? <laughs> That's what I was gonna say. I never met someone who thinks like me. Jinx? Our mental secret? No. Okay. So they're, they're in cue here. Sorry, that's a frozen reference. I have an eight-year-old daughter. Um, we, we see that their, their love is such where they're, they're in tune with one another in a way that was not like that under wedding night. He mentions aspects of her body he didn't know under wedding night because he's committed to studying his wife. He knows her now like he's never known her before. We must become students of our spouses if love will deepen. A year ago, I had the privilege of marrying Chris and Val here in this very stage. And I told them in the wedding that you've got to be committed to studying one another. And Chris, you need to be an expert in valorology, right? And she needs to be a Christologist and and that's, that's the kind of people we need to be in marriage. You must study your spouse to know their likings, to know things that give them joy, not just their physical appearance, but who they are. And we see here that this deepening love comes because this man has studied his wife like a scholarship depended on it. And as I'm reading this, some of you are like, okay, enough of the descriptions already. We heard this in chapter 4. We heard this in chapter 6. We're here in chapter 7. All right, enough of this. And I think that's part of the idea, though. Not, it's not enough of it in marriage. It continues on. It's not a wedding night thing. 
It's not a thing a year later. But that, that intimate love and knowledge of one another is to increase over time. And so you see, you get a sense that they're not going to stop talking like this with one another because they're committed to a deepening love. You'll notice there's no mention of body type or size. They're all descriptions that evoke an emotion. And yet our culture is extremely cold to you ladies. It is cold because it puts pressure on you that God has not created for you. It tells you your identity is based upon the tightness of your clothes, the shortness of your skirt, and the lowering of that neckline. That's not what God says. Because even here as he describes his bride, his wife, it's not about those things as much as what emotion is there because of his love for her. And our culture says it's about what you see. That's not what's true. It's about what God has done within. It's the character of the heart that is most precious. And the lie continues on to you, ladies, because with every visit to the gym, every bowl of salad, every high heel dress, accessory, sweet scents, makeup, and hairstyle, there's still that voice in your ear that says, still not enough, right? Still not enough. And what Song of Solomon teaches us is that that's not where your identity is at. Fashion is good. Do it. Wear those heels. Dress nicely. Enjoy that hairstyle. Do it. But don't let it be your identity. Don't let it be the source of who you are. Because it's the inward character of the heart. First Peter, Peter says to the ladies, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting out of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. He's not saying they're bad. He's saying, so don't let that be your, your, uh, your identity, he says. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. Husbands, learn how to draw that out of your wife. Learn how to compliment your wife's character. Learn to not be always fixated upon her external appearance, though you may be attracted, and that is good, and you praise her, but don't only praise her when she's dressed up. Praise your wife. Single men, as you live your single lives and as you prayerfully hope for a bride enter into your life, let it be the things of imperishable nature that you value most. Let that be what attracts you to a woman. And single ladies, cultivate that above all else, above all else, because that's how God has designed romance to be, and that's how he's designed love to deepen within marriage. That's the way God made it to be. Robert Chisholm speaks of how we see this couple's love deepen. And he says there's a, there's a challenge in our culture that doesn't understand this. And he writes, in recent years, there's been much discussion about free love and sexual liberation. In particular, among the young adults, there's been a stated desire to escape the bondage of marriage. And then he goes on to speak of all the hurts that have come with that mindset. He says, the Song of Songs teaches clearly that proper love within marriage produces genuine sexual liberation. This is not liberation from marriage, but liberation in marriage. And the couple here is free to know each other in a way that is far deeper than they knew each other outside of marriage. 
And what Chisholm is saying here and what the Bible is telling us is that when a couple, when a husband and a wife make a covenant and grow in marriage, there is a deepening that takes place through the freedom they enjoy with one another as they study each other and know each other. That's the way God designed it. And if you're a couple here today and you're saying, you know, we're not deepening in our, in our knowledge of each other. I mean, we, we, that thing stalled years ago. I got two, just two ideas for you here. And it's going to be this. It's going to take risk. And you've you got to risk in two ways. First of all, you've got to risk studying diligently. And, and I say it's a risk because when you study for an exam, you're bound to get problems wrong. And when you study your spouse, you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up, and you can't be all thin-skinned and crying like, oh, I tried. Look, she says she likes this. I did it first. She's mad at me. I'm done. No, you got to risk more than that. you got to work harder than that. you got to be committed to diligently studying, and not like multiple-choice kind of studying. You guys know what that's like. You figure, if I know the idea, I can guess the right answer if I'm given four options. But you know, when the professor says, I'm giving you an essay exam, you know it's just a blank sheet of paper and a question, and I've got to write it out. You study differently for essays. You not only internalize the material, but you learn to communicate the material. And in like manner, husbands and wives study your spouse, not for multiple choice, but begin to know them, internalize who they are, and then communicate it to them in the way that you love. That's deepening love. So you've got to risk studying diligently, and you've got to risk loving dangerously because it takes vulnerability. You run the risk of having your feelings hurt. You run the risk of her or him not receiving the way you're wanting to love them. You also love dangerously when you say, hey, I like to be loved in this way. Can you love me this way? It's vulnerability. And so here we see this couple committed to deepening love. But what that deepening love does take creativity. And that's what we see here in chapter 7, verse 11. She goes on, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. It's springtime. There I will give you my love. Verse 13, the mandrake give forth fragrance, and besides our doors are still choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. I think there's a key here in, in that phrase where she says she is storing up new and old fruits for her beloved. And so that leads to our second point. Firstly, not only do we deepen in love, but we have must, also must have a creative love which lets old love produce new expressions. You know, there are times in relationships where you say, you know, remember the times we used to go out of bike rides? Remember when we used to just have picnics? Remember when we had game night in the living room and just watched the movie? Remember when we had those old expressions that were valued and maybe missed? Or maybe it's the opposite. We're like, hey, we're still doing the same things we always did. Like, yeah, but... But I feel like we're just in this, this rotation that's not real sincere. And, and there needs new expressions. There takes creativity in relationship to grow within marriage. Creativity. Old expressions must give way to new ones. And that's got to be reciprocal. 
You got to explore ways to love in this manner. She goes on in chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. Let me unpack that for you here. All right. <laughs> pause, pause, right? What it is is in that society, it was culturally, accept, uh, culturally acceptable to show affection to your family. It, it, was, it was accepted. You can, you can see your brother or sister. You can like, see them in public, hug them, like, hey, how you doing? Kiss them on the cheek. There's nothing weird about it. But if you did that with someone who was not a relative, it was seen as taboo. And here this woman is saying, I have such a passionate love for you. I wish I could just see you out at the marketplace and just give you a kiss. Just give you a wet one. Verse 2, she says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, and it would not be seen bad, of course. She who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my, of my pomegranate. And so now she's saying, you know, this is the image, but she's saying, but there's, there's something deep here because you're my husband. And in verse 3, his left hand under my head and his right hand embraced me. She wants to bring him into her home. She wants to be able to express her love as she desires without others seeing and saying what they might. And then she says in verse 4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This, I believe, is the third time we've seen that phrase in this book. And I think what she's doing here is, is this. As she's reflecting upon the creative ways to love him, the creative desires she has, she's reminding the singles in her town, saying, hey, it's, it's worth the wait. This is, this is a sweet time in my marriage, and I want you to know that your time of singleness will speak to this. So she's saying, don't awaken love until it's time, and it's time on your wedding night. And so here we have this woman in the midst of her marriage pleading with the singles, saying this was, this was worth the wait. Do not awaken love. We've seen that they have a deepening love, a creative love. And thirdly, we see that they have a fierce love for one another. Verse 5. It is as if the others, the onlookers, are saying this. They say, who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? And as she speaks, under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Let me unpack that for you as well. The apple tree is not a literal place in the field, okay? It is reminiscent of love. And she's saying that she and her beloved went to this tree, the tree of love, and that's where their marriage was awakened. And she says, in like manner, so was your mother, she's telling her, her groom, so was your mother awakened in that same place. But then she mentions how his mother conceived and gave birth to him, and you're like, What's, that's just weird. And so what she's referring to, I believe, is that when love was awakened, so were labor pains, so to speak. And I think what's being said here is that in marriage, there is the sweetness of the fruit and the trials of the labor. And that was awakened at their wedding day. The hard times and the good times of marriage. And that's why marriage takes a fierce commitment. So she goes on to say in verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arms, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. 
If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. She's telling him, I want to be as a seal impressed upon your heart and upon your arm. See, a seal in those times was a way that you can signify something to be genuine or authentic. Kings carried seals with them, sometimes around their neck in a necklace or sometimes as part of their ring. And when they would send a letter out, they'd put wax or clay upon it, and they'd put their seal and press it upon the wax or clay. And when it dried up, it was hardened, and there was their seal. So when a letter was sent and it was delivered and that seal was not broken, the recipients of the letter could say, this is authentic. This came from so-and-so. I know it to be genuine and true. And here the bride says to her husband, please put me as a seal upon your heart and upon your arm. I want to know that our love is genuine. I want others to be able to see that I belong to you. I want prime place in your heart and on your arm, which resembles his strength. When a woman believes that her husband has given her the strength, of her emotion, his emotion and his strength as a man. She feels safe, she feels secure, and she feels free. And what she is saying here is put me in this place to her husband. Men, that means that you can't put more energy into your fantasy football league than you do in cultivating your marriage. It, it means that you don't let anyone else have pride or place in your heart. You don't cultivate friendships alone with other women because your bride is to know that she is a seal upon your heart, that she has your strength and your energy. And the same goes for women toward men. Ladies, let your husbands know that he has your affection and he has your strength. And here the bride is saying, set me as a seal upon your heart in this way. She wants to know that he is near. Why? Because she says, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Love is as strong as death. People don't come back from the dead, apart from the resurrection of Jesus. But death is final. There's a finality finality to it. And what she's saying is, love is that way. And she's saying, I love you with this kind of love. It is as jealous as the grave. Jealousy is not altogether a bad quality in a relationship because love and jealousy do go hand in hand because they go hand in hand with God. See, she goes on to say, it's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of God. And she's saying, love and jealousy resemble and reflect, they take their cues from God himself. See, in the book of Exodus, when God had brought his people out of Egypt and into the wilderness... He told them, have no other gods before me. And then in Exodus chapter 32, Moses went up to the mount, mountain, Mount Sinai. He was there for 40 days. They're looking at their watches saying, this is taking way too long. Where is Moses? Where is his God? And he goes on, they go on to say, we got to craft our own God. They make these golden calves and begin to worship them. Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He breaks them. He's distraught. He's uh, rebuking them, saying, what are you doing? Our God brought us out of Egypt. Look at the way he's loved us. He's a jealous God. And in chapter 34, Moses says, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Some people have a hard time with that. 
Why is God jealous? It's not because he needs you or me. But I believe his jealousy is this. Because he is the God of this universe. He is the creator of all things. And he is the one through whom his love, with his love has wooed you to himself. And as a lover, he says, I want you to be mine. And when you come to me, there is fullness of joy. There is forgiveness. There is delight. There is pleasure. So God says, I'm jealous for my love. And it's a good thing because as you come to him, you can experience his love and all the greatness and riches that come with it. So his jealousy is not only for his enjoyment, but it's also for yours. So our God is a loving God and a jealous God. His love is such that it's unconditional. The Hebrew word hesed carries the idea of steadfastness. And so here the bride says, our God has loved us with that hesed, covenant-keeping love. He is jealous for our affection. And in our marriage, we take our cues from God, and we love each other, and we are jealous for each other's love. And that doesn't mean that you're always weary and leery. It doesn't mean that. But it means that you have prime place in the heart and upon the arm of your spouse. Nowadays, she would have said, I want my name tatted on your arm, or something like that. We see that there's a fierceness to their love, because love in marriage takes its cues from God, the great lover, the great pursuer, and ultimately, our husband, as we are his bride. We come now to this final section. Oh, I forgot a part. I have to turn the page. She goes on to say that many waters cannot quench love and floods cannot wash it out. He said that someone would sell their possessions for love, he'd be despised. Because true love as God has designed it is unquenchable. It's unquenchable. The same kind of love which God has toward us. And love is to be valued and treasured. Um, We might want to give our wealth for love, but we know love can't be bought. It can't be bought. And so here in this song, we see them valuing love as priceless. Priceless. The book concludes with this idea where they begin to reflect. We've seen that they have a deepening love for each other. We've seen how this couple has a creative love. We've seen their fierce love. And now we see a reflective love. Because there is something good and sweet about remembering. Remembering from where you came. But as they remember, there are some amazing lessons for you as singles in this passage. Because these concluding verses, she begins to reflect upon her own journey as a woman. Remembering the days she was still under her household apart from marriage. And if you remember in chapter 1, her father wasn't in the picture for whatever reason, but it was her brothers that had responsibility to care for her. And she goes on here in verse 8 to say this, or is that the brothers were speaking. It says, we have a little sister, and she has no breasts. She's not within the time of maturation. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. They're saying, what shall we do for our sister on the day that her groom comes to receive her? And they liken her to either a wall or a door. 
A wall cannot be opened. And they're saying if she refrains from promiscuity, we're going to reward her with an embattlement of silver. They're going to reward her for her choices. They say, but if she's a door, if she seems to be open to flirtation and things like that, we're going to seal her up because we want her, we want her to be saved for that day. And so she's remembering this here. And then she says in verse 10, I was a wall. But she says that my breasts were like towers, which is to say she was of marital age, but she was still choosing to remain a wall, pure. And she says, then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. The word peace is shalom. The name Solomon is shalomo. And so here's a word play. She's saying, when I was there as a wall, fighting for my purity, although I was of marital age, it was at that time I saw my shalomo, my peace, my Solomon, her new husband. We see that this bride, reflecting upon her days when she sought to remain pure. And there is a beautiful message for each who are single today. Whatever your past is like, whatever choices you've made or ways others have hurt you, choose from this day to honor God with your body. It is precious in his sight. He has created you. Your identity is not based on what you give, but who you are because of who God says that you are. And you need not give yourself to anybody at any time. And you save yourself for your husband or your wife. And here this bride says, I was ready for marriage, but it didn't come my way. But she said, I was going to remain a wall. And there's so many temptations flying at you, singles. So many hard things are pushed upon you. And your desires are there. Those are desires God has made. But in his strength, you can put those to the side and say, God, I'm trusting these desires to you. But from now until the time, should it be your will, I'm going to remain pure and honor you as my God. And here we see this reflected in her choices. She wanted a character that transcended her externals. Remember? My skin is burned, but I know I'm lovely. She knew she was a wall. She said, I'm not giving myself. I'm saving myself. We said a few weeks ago that sometimes the choices in our lives hold over us a weight. And I pointed you to a passage in Joel 2, and it's worth restating again today. In the book of Joel, God brings destruction upon his people for their rebellion. And the way he does it, he sends locusts of all things. Wild insects to come and eat of their grain and all their crops. And the people are saying, we are feeling the judgment of God. But then God gives this promise in Joel 2. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. God says, I will restore those lost years. And some of you just receive that. Know that your Father in heaven will restore those years with goodness and with joy that come from him, joy that no one else could bring. There's a joy that not even the best husband or best wife in the world can bring. But the lover of your soul who will restore those years. God pleads with his people. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. But he says, but still come to me. 
Come to me and receive this. Brothers and sisters, receive it. Receive it. You fight for your internal beauty, the imperishable character of the heart. Proverbs 11.22 says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And what the proverb is telling us is that discretion is far more beautiful than a gold ring. That's the character that God wants us to have. And here the bride is remembering that day that she is now committed to the end, reflecting upon her marriage and saying, I remember that day that my brothers, they they fought for me. They, They wanted to help me, to keep me pure for that day. Parents, your children have been entrusted to you to guard their purity. There are many things that are out of your control. Many things. Many things. But there are equally many things that are in your control. The freedoms you give your children, the choices you allow them to make, you fight for them. The things that they set before their eyes via TV, movies, or those phones. Guard and fight for them. Speak for them. Because they may not know how to be a wall. And their door is being swung open by culture that is so tempting. Maybe you're a brother or sister who has a sibling who's younger than you. You speak that into their lives. You're in high school right now. You fight for that. If you're, if you're in junior high, you fight for that. Be a wall. Say, I'm sealed off. I'm waiting for that right person at that right day, for God's right timing. And this woman is saying, looking back on the years of marriage, and say, I remember those days. Essentially, she's saying, I'm thankful for it. But it's interesting, because if you recall in the story that her brothers had a vineyard, and they made her work. Fields. It's like they, were, like they secluded her. Don't, don't do that. Don't lock your kid up. They, they, they secluded her, and she's just like discouraged. Here, my brother's got a vineyard. They got me outside working all day, but my own vineyard, she says, I haven't even cared for. I, says, I haven't combed my hair in weeks. I'm on, you know, pedicure, what's that? I'm on the vineyard working. Verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard, and I think this is literally speaking, at Baal and he let out the vineyard to keepers. Who did Solomon lend out his vineyard to keep? Who were the people he asked to watch his vineyard? Well, none other than her brothers. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one has to bring forth its fruit for a thousand pieces of silver. They worked the vineyards, gave the profits to Solomon, and kept some of it for themselves. They were hired hands. And here she is working the the vineyard, and she's probably thinking to herself, how am I ever going to find a husband in the vineyard? How am I ever going to find love pulling off these grapes from the vine? When God, in his sovereignty, made the owner of that vineyard, to someday be her beloved. Verse 12, my vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousands. You might have, you can have the fruit of my vineyard. And then she says, and the keepers, they can have 200 of the fruit. Which is, she is saying, essentially, she's grateful for her brothers who kept her. And now that her vineyard belongs to Solomon, she said, you can have of its fruit. There are some of you today feel like, 
I'm working in that vineyard, and I don't know from where love will come. I don't know in my life where it's going to happen. And if it's God's will for you to marry somebody, it's not God's will for everybody. There's a great calling in singleness. There's a beauty. It is a gift that God has given. But for to those who he calls to marry, she here is caught up building her character, remaining pure, working the vineyard, and it is at that place where God meets her with love. She's not going out there looking for it, throwing herself around, trying to find where it's going to stick. But she's walking in God's will, and that's where she finds him. That's where she finds him. It is hard to wait. It is hard to wait. But please know that waiting is worth it. Waiting is worth it. If you're waiting for a spouse or if you're waiting for glory, where you will be rewarded for your diligence, and you would taste the fruit of knowing God, it is worth it. And here she is saying, it was worth it, and I've given the fruit of my vineyard to my husband. He speaks, and here we have these last two verses, one verse from him and one verse from her. He says, oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice. He says, let me hear it. Remember chapter 2 says that? He says, my dove, let me hear your voice. He just wants that communication with her. And then she went for the home run. She says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spice. And then the book ends. And you're like, what, what, what kind of ending is that? He's like, honey, let me hear your voice. She's like, all right, come here, honey. Climb the mountains. And, and we're just left with like, where, where's the next verse? What's going on? And I think this is it. It is climactically anticlimactic. Right? You're waiting for more, but you realize you've got everything you need because it's as if the cycle of love starts up all over again. Remember verse 1? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then they go on, and you're like, man, this couple, cool them off. And so here they are later on in the years. They come to the last verse of the book, and they're like, all right, we're going right back to it. Because that's marriage. We see their passion. We see their waiting. We see their conflict. We see them learning to communicate in some really awkward and hard times. But then we see them going back to intimacy. We see them being creative, looking for new expressions of love. We see them reflecting on God's faithfulness. We see them fierce, and then we see them returning into that cycle. Because that's how marriage is. So whether you're preparing for marriage today or in marriage, a growing marriage requires commitment to it. The kind of commitment that studies your spouse kind of commitment that looks for new expressions of love. The kind of commitment that takes his loving cues from God and his unquenchable love for us. And the kind that reflects upon God's faithfulness through the years. Marriage shouldn't die over time. Love and passion shouldn't wane. If you recall, Robert C. McQuilkin saying, for 40 years, this wife of mine served and loved me. And if I served her for 40 years more, I would still be in debt. That's passion. That's deep love, far deeper than most of us know. But I I guarantee he was committed to his bride as she was committed to him through the ups and the downs, as we learn here in the Song of Solomon. 
God has given us the Song of Solomon because there's so much confusion about love, about intimacy and marriage and singleness for that matter. And in his kindness, he instructs us. And he tells us what's always, oftentimes fed to us in our society may not be what God has designed. And as we come to his word and as we see what he has provided, let's rejoice and seek to be the kind of people, singles and married, men and women, who are committed to our God first of all and who are committed to living out this life in a way that honors him. And should God bring us into marriage, we would honor him with that marriage so that our marriage could point to that perfect picture. And if it be in singleness, that we'd honor him with our singleness, that we would await that day where that perfect picture becomes a reality, and you, his bride, will feast at the table of Jesus. This is the promise that is given to all of God's children. We become God's children by surrendering our lives to Jesus to receive his forgiveness, to know that we can belong to him. We can know that loving and jealous kind of love that God has for you, his daughter, for you, his son. And when you place your faith in him, you are adopted into his family and a great feast awaits you in glory one day. And so let's walk this life with diligence, Brooke family, walking with each other, protecting each other, guiding each other, praying for each other as we fight this good fight of the faith for the glory of God, and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I know, um, I know this series has opened up some wounds. I know this series has healed some wounds. And so, Father, I pray for each who are here today who carry wounds that are remaining open, that they remember those words in Isaiah 53 that says, by your stripes we are healed. And so, Father, maybe it's the, the hurt of, of a failed marriage, a hurt of divorce, unfaithfulness, wounds that carry on. My God, I pray that you would bring healing there. And you would give new days, bring back a new springtime in that brother or that sister's life. For that single today who wants to wait for you, Lord, and is having just the hardest of times, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you would restore years, that you would bring peace, that truthfully, God, that your love is better than the affection of a husband or a wife. And Lord, I know that that's hard to hear and receive sometimes. But I pray that they would receive that and know it to be true. Not just, not just hear it, but know it to be true, God, and feel that, that, that nearness of your love. For those couples today, God, who are just fighting it out, maybe even fought this morning, God, I pray that you would renew their commitment to their marriage. That they would not let giving up be an option. That they would never have a towel that they can throw but they can communicate, they can conflict well, and they can trust you to do the work that you do. Father, give us a fight. Help us not be passive, God, as if things are just going to naturally come about. Help us fight for joy, fight to communicate, fight to fight well. And may we through our lives honor you, God, in all that we do. Lord, we confess that we need you. (laughs) We need you desperately, God. And we thank you that you invite us 
delight ourselves in you. So now, Lord, as we pray this song of dependency upon you, I pray that we would receive the joy and satisfaction of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, family, let's rise to our feet as we conclude in these final songs. We do have prayer leaders who would come forward. We'd love to pray with you and to carry the burdens that you carry. But let's lift our voices in song of praise and rejoicing to our great God.